Well, I don't think anybody commented on Garrett's socks. I don't know if you know who Garrett is. He was the dad right down here, and his socks were about 48 different colors. Number one, daddy. His kids were on them. Uh, I think that was like a highlight of the day for me so far. Uh, and I didn't want to miss out on highlighting the socks. Uh, the last several weeks, uh, at least I've been on sabbatical. We're grateful for a church that uh, gives us that opportunity to refresh and uh, and we were you know, incredibly grateful for that. I asked when I got back this week, uh, what are things that we've seen God do around here? And I just love the way God moves and works. So I love that on the move, and God continues to be on the move uh, through 121. So thank you for being a faithful part of that. Uh, we started a food truck ministry uh, this last Friday. So if you love food trucks, uh, ask about that. Maybe you get involved that way. Uh, we have a lot going on in prisons right now through our messages, both Spanish and English, being piped into different prisons, and uh, there's especially a great response to Arnaldo and what's going on on the Spanish videos and so forth going out, uh, so we love that. Uh, one of the things that I always look forward to is who our new staff will be when I get back from somewhere, and sometimes I'm not sure. I just walk in the hall and say, are you on staff? You know, it's... Uh, but we hired two new people, our Jehudas, our new neighborhood minister, Michelle Bay starts uh, in our life group world, and then we have five interns for the summer, and work with our students, kids, and just love what God's already been doing in the lives of our students and our, and our kids. That that's just starts to touch it, uh, what God's doing. So we love it, love what He's doing. Uh, for Lisa and myself on our sabbatical, uh, one of the things that God continues to show me and I think is so crucial for us as a church uh, is how critical space is. Uh, space to just be alone with God, space to be with our spouses, space to be with our kids, space to be with extended family. Uh, we had space with a church we served in in Florida uh, 20-something years ago, space to be with people we served in the first church where I served uh, probably 30 years ago, uh, and just loved that time uh, with people. It's just good to be able to spend time with God and not have to rush off somewhere uh, or to be thinking what that next thing uh, is. Uh, and, and we can create that space, by the way, not just when somebody's on a sabbatical. Uh, it's just, it's, it's will we prioritize uh, that kind of space. So it was a good refresher uh, for us. One of the observations I made, uh, we went to three different churches uh, while we were gone. Uh, one was a small Reformed Presbyterian church. I think there might have been 75 people at most uh, in the building. We went there on Mother's Day. Uh, we went to a Bible church. Uh, and then we went to uh, a borderline, probably Pentecostal, but not quite, uh, but highly energized. Uh, and here's my observation that I just loved. The small Reformed Presbyterian Church, and I still have the notebook we received for the service that day uh, of all the different liturgical readings uh, and so forth. And uh, I enjoyed that for the day, and I kept it because God really ministered to me through one phrase uh, in it. Uh, but in this small 75-person Reformed Presbyterian church, there was a vibrancy for the Lord. There was a joy among the people. They came ready to worship. They sang loud, and they sang with zeal those hymns that we sang in that small little church. 
In the Bible church we went to, I don't know that there was a person without a Bible in their lap, a pen, and a notebook, and taking notes on the expositional preaching that was going on. It was three hymns, an organ special, and we dug in the Word. And you know what we noticed? There was a joy and a vibrancy and a zeal for the Lord among those people. And the Pentecostal vibe, which wasn't Pentecostal, but just kind of, you know, it's like the time you step onto the grass, uh, everything was up. I mean, it was upbeat from the time we walked in. The music was up. The announcements were up. The preaching never dialed down. The response was up, and we were up when we walked out. Uh, And you know what? There was a vibrancy and a joy and a fervency among them for God. And I love that God works in all kinds of spaces, all kinds of forms, as long as it's true to his word. God is alive and well. He's on the move. We don't always see it in today's culture, and he is. If you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, I want to divert today from the book of Acts, and we'll pick up next week, and, and we'll actually finish off the book of Acts this summer. We've spent a bit uh, of time working our way through it, and we're going to take larger chunks. We'll finish it off, uh, and we'll go back there this coming Sunday. Uh, today, what I want us to think about is what we just say in that last song about a good, good father. And, and I want us to think about today on this Father's Day, uh, I, I know this day holds Uh, a number of emotions for people depending on what your experience is, what my my experience is. Uh, And today what I'd like to fixate on though is the most amazing father ever. Uh, And I'd like us really just to talk about God today uh, as our father. And I think uh, as dads and granddads and anybody else that the greatest thing we can do today is to lean into the father uh, who is the perfect and good father. Now, one of the convictions that I had on my sabbatical is at least for a while, I wasn't willing to commit to it for the long haul because I don't know how I'll do, uh, but I'm going to quit making fun of other colleges by a- besides A&M. Uh, that is my, uh, my testimony before you, my conviction for today. Uh, I don't know if it'll change this week, uh, but at least uh, today I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, and I want to start with the University of Oklahoma girls softball team. A number of you uh, probably saw this interview on ESPN, uh, and some of you probably did not. I've watched it multiple times. I haven't tired of it yet. So even if you've seen it, I hope you're energized by it today. And I think they set our hearts well uh, on God our Father today. So let's take a look uh, at these OU girls being interviewed by an ESPN reporter. Keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious. It's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time. The win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances. And outcomes. Um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only, the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. 
1,000% agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I I was so happy to win the college. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled, and I had to find Christ in that. And I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously we've worked our butts off to be here and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah, um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And, I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with Um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really, like, shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. Um, And I think that's just what brings me so much joy and no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home. And I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home. And um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So, Patty. Uh... Yeah. I'm not sure the reporter knew what to ask next. <laughs> I also did note in my mind, I haven't ever heard a reporter ask a group of guys, hey, how do you keep your joy? Uh, so it was interesting that uh, even the way he framed the question with them, uh, and I love uh, how God orchestrated that. Well, wouldn't you uh, love to be living the way that last, young, that last young lady described, an eternity of joy? This is not our home. And because this is not our home, we, we can re- live freely, we can risk, we can adventure, we can get out there. This isn't our home. We, we long for something greater. And at 22 or 20 years old, however old that young lady is, what a depth of getting it. Eternity of joy with our Father in heaven. Our Father who will actually reestablish and bring the new heavens and the new earth to where we are. And he'll be among us as a Father. Eternity of joy. The last young lady that spoke, she's, uh, she was baptized last year in 2022 by two of her teammates. And that's, that's what we're loving around 121 is that when someone comes to Christ, you lead them to Jesus and then you baptize them and then you teach them and you disciple them and you bring them along. And what a gift and a privilege to be a part of leading people towards that joy 
that's an eternal joy in the kingdom, and it's something we long for. So let's think about, uh, just for a few minutes, uh, the most amazing father ever, the father those young ladies were describing for us who's worth living for far more than anything else uh, on this earth. And, and we wanna think like they're thinking, eyes up. By the way, they won the national championship, and not only do they have hearts for Jesus, those are some stud girls. Uh, I watched that game, it was an amazing game uh, in watching them play. Uh, but t- today there's three books that I've been mentored by uh, recently and in the past, and, and I, don't wanna, I won't mention them again. They've been helpful to me uh, in formulating thoughts for today. One is Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey, uh, and it just gives a perspective. We, we look through Western eyes because we're in the West. It makes sense we would look that way. And so it's helpful uh, that from the land of the Bible and where Jesus was that we have insights uh, from Middle Eastern eyes into the Scriptures. And uh, my son has been reading that book, and I jumped in it with him, and, uh, and so this that actually gave me the impetus for today. Uh, and then uh, Timothy Keller's book, The Prodigal God, uh, has been helpful. Uh, and then on my sabbatical, I started this in the last message before I left, uh, but a book by uh, Randy Alcorn called Heaven. Uh, is influencing me heavily right now uh, in my thinking. It's been really rich and scripturally anchored uh, into what we're looking towards. Uh, But I want us to start in Matthew 6, 9 uh, and think about uh, God this way. Jesus is teaching uh, a group of people uh, and he's telling them this is the way to pray. Uh, In in verse 9 of chapter 6 in Matthew, he says, uh, pray then in this way, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now he starts with that phrase, our father, and that's where I want us to camp, our father. And, and we are, we tend to be, since the 1950s or so in the U.S., we've tended to be more of an individualistic culture, less of a communal kind of culture. And, and Jesus is teaching them in a way here that this is our father. Uh, this, this faith is going to be something that's a family-oriented faith, that we have a father, uh, and it says our father. Uh, the Old Testament of the Bible is written originally in the language Hebrew. The New Testament is originally written in a language, it's Greek. Scattered throughout, though, are some Aramaic words and phrases. That was more the common language of the Hebrew people in that day. There was a classical kind of Hebrew they spoke, and then Aramaic was more that common everyday language that they would speak. It it would be like uh, writing a formal English paper. Uh, There's a particular kind of way that you would write that you make sure that it's uh, grammatically correct. Uh, And then there's the way we talk, you know, day to day. And we don't always talk the same way Perhaps we should, uh, but we don't talk the same way uh, that we write uh, a formal paper. Uh, So maybe think of it uh, like that. Uh, What is the significance then here when I say that? The word Abba in Matthew 6, 9 is an Aramaic word, not a Greek word. So bulk of the New Testament written in Greek, there's some Aramaic. This is one place where it's Aramaic in that common language, Abba. Why does that matter? According to Kenneth Bailey, um, if you think about Judaism, the Old Testament, there was a a language for Judaism. It's the Hebrew language. 
When you think about Islam today, Arabic, it's more of the sacred language for it. When Jesus says Abba and introduces this way to pray to God, he says, our father, Abba, he's using the common kind of everyday language. In essence, he's saying in Christianity, there is no sacred language, which means that the scriptures can be translated. It opens the door for the scriptures to be translated in the heart language of people. So that every person, every tongue, tribe, nation has access to God as Father, our Father. So the word Abba is significant in thinking of it uh, that way. And I love thinking about that because so much of our vision 2025 in establishing worship where there is none is being a part of the scriptures being translated in languages where it doesn't exist yet. Today, we can open the scriptures and you and I can read them in our heart language. But there are people groups all over the world that don't have access to God's word in their language. And and we're a part of that, of of that happening across the world right now so that they can. Uh, And and Jesus opens that door saying, Abba, uh, Abba, our Father. There's three other times in the New Testament that we see this word. In Mark chapter 14, Uh, verse 36. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before he uh, goes to the cross, uh, and he is fervently praying uh, to God, and he was saying in verse 36, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And he's saying it in Aramaic and in Greek. The word Father is in Greek. The word Abba is in Aramaic. He's saying both, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, uh, but what you will. So we come to Abba, to God our Father, in those most desperate times in our lives. That's, he, he, Jesus is coming in. So it gives us an idea of who God the Father is. He's one that we come to when we're in our hardest and most difficult moments. He's a Father who will be there. And he'll meet us in that place. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it says, You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. In Aramaic, in Greek, in the common language of the Hebrew people and the common language of the day, the Greek language, Abba, Father. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to God. We're sons of his. We've been adopted. That's who we are now. No longer slaves, but sons. And then Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Our Father, our Father. The word Abba was used two ways. It could be used to address someone of rank, and so it was a term of respect. It was also a very personal term. So it was very relational. So it was both relational experientially, and it was a term of respect. Well, he used the word Abba. Up until this point, God is not referred to in a title as Father. 
When you read through the Old Testament, there are metaphors, there's images about God being like a father, but there's not a direct address to God as father. So when Jesus is teaching them, our father, this would be groundbreaking for them in their ears. They would be accustomed to what Pam read when she talked earlier about Deuteronomy 6. They would recite prayers and say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. Or, or they would refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they did not refer to him as Father. Now Jesus comes and he's introducing to them, you can have access to God and he can be your father, our father. One who we can come to, one who adopts and chooses us as sons and as daughters. Now what would be the best way for us to define a father? If, if Jesus is our father, then how do we define him? Our tendency is to define God as father in the way we experienced a father. That, that's where we tend to go. Emotionally, mentally, we think this is what my father was like and we transfer that to what God our father is like. That would not be a proper way to figure out who God is as father. We would want to go and see what Jesus said about God as Father and let that tell us who he is. We're talking about the most, most amazing Father ever. Now, what's characteristic of him and who is he? In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story. He actually, there's three stories that are actually recorded in Luke 15. And it's important to note who he's telling the story to. It says there are tax collectors and sinners that are gathered around him. And tax collectors were not looked upon favorably. Sinners, just broad category, people who don't have it right. Irreligious people. But irreligious people were drawn to Jesus. That's a good question for us to ask today. Are irreligious people drawn to us? The people who have no interest in our faith, are they drawn to us? See, irreligious, sacrilegious, sexually immoral people were drawn to Jesus. That's part of who he's talking to. He was also talking to the Pharisees and scribes. The Pharisees, they, they knew what part of God's word they had. They understood it. They knew it. They tried to live it. There's the religious people. And Jesus tells a story to the irreligious and to the religious. He tells a story to those who are wild, off the rails, more interested in self-discovery, determining their own identity, to use today's terminology. They were all about self-improvement, about themselves, figuring it out how they wanted to do it, and leave me alone while I figure it out. And he was also talking to the religious, 
the morals, the ones who were following all the right morals as they understood them, the ones who had been faithful in attending the synagogues at the time. It would be people today that faithfully attend church, do the serving, were keeping all the morals. He's talking to both, irreligious and religious. And he has in this story uh, a younger brother and an older brother and then a father. And here's where we learn how Jesus describes our father. <clears throat> the younger brother, some are familiar with the story, some not as familiar. But the younger brother decides he doesn't like it where he is with his father, the work he's doing on the land. He wants to go out on his own. He wants to self-discover. He wants to figure things out. He wants to live as wild and loose as he can and see if that's the way to go. And he asks his father for his inheritance early. He doesn't have any money. He wants all this freedom. So, hey, dad, will you, kind of, will you give me now what I would get when you die, which in essence what he's saying to his dad is I wish you were already dead. Now, in that day, the older son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son would receive one-third. Land was critical to that day in what people had. So really what the younger son was asking was asking the father to sell off a third of his land and give him that money so he can have his inheritance and go do his own deal. And stunningly, the father did it. And the son goes off and he kind of tries his own thing and it, it doesn't go well. He, he squanders everything, loses his friends, ends up working in a uh, pig kind of thing and trying to get food there and so forth. And then he just decides, you got to give the guy credit. He started figuring out, I'm going to make my way back home. And I can just at least go in as a hired person. I, I don't have the status of a son because I've shamed and dishonored my father and the family. But he makes his way back. And here we have the descriptor of our father. The dad sees him and goes running towards him, lifts his robe and goes running. That was not cool for an elderly dad in that day. But he lost all dignity and he just ran towards his son. He didn't even give his son a chance to do his rehearsed speech. And he gave him his best coat. And by giving him his best coat, what he was saying is, I'm restoring you back to the family. And the fattened calf, they brought out that kind of thing just for celebrations. This young man disgraced his father. And yet his father has a grace that is a stunning grace towards his son. Brings him in. The irreligious tax collectors and sinners would have heard that story and identified with that younger brother. And what good news for them that there's this compassionate, gracious father 
They'll come running towards him. Now wonder they were drawn to Jesus. They were met with compassion, kindness, grace, a love which would say never experienced before. But those who know the story, you know there's an older brother. And the older brother hears all the celebrating going on and he's trying to figure out what's happening and he starts asking and he learns his younger brother has come home. And rather than be excited about the younger brother that's home now, and you know why he wasn't excited? Because if the younger brother is restored, when the dad dies, we're already down to two-thirds th- uh, two of the land. Now it's going to get redivided again. And he's going to get a whole lot less from his dad. And the scripture says that he's angry. And the father pleads with him. The father is pleading with his religious son to understand. You've been here with me all along. But he said, yeah, but I've done this and I've done that. I did everything you told me to do. I've been obedient. I've done everything. And you've never even thrown a party for me. And the father says, you know what? Your brother was lost. Now he's found. And the story ends. The older brother was identified with the Pharisees and the scribes. And those religious people would have understood that Jesus was talking about them. What's interesting about the story in this father is that both the younger brother and the older brother are the same. One, wild, irreligious, out of control, do whatever. The other, religious, moral, keep the rules, obey. All they wanted was what they could get out of their father. Neither son was interested in the father just for the father. One of the things Timothy Keller says, I think it's really good, is that there's always a sin underneath the sin. So what's underneath the sin of these two brothers? They've both placed themselves above God as Savior. But they're trying to bring salvation in two different ways. And sometimes it's much harder for this self-righteous religious person to see that what they've been doing is to just try to earn and get something from God and it's not for God himself. Whereas the wild, irreligious, out of control, that person can often more easily see this isn't working. But what's available to both is the grace and compassion and mercy of a father for the irreligious and the religious, but both of them are in desperate need of the grace of God, which comes through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Our father, Jesus tells us what he's like, compassionate, loving, gracious, 
generous, provider, kind. He's the most amazing father ever. Randy Alcorn tells a story in his book, Heaven. And then he talks about, a, he actually quotes another book, another story. And a king was out in a forest one day and, and he found a blind, destitute orphan boy. And he took that boy and he brought him back to his palace and he adopted that boy as his own son. And he gave him all the things, all the benefits of being a part of the kingdom that he had. He had the best food and the best clothes and he was walking around in the best gardens and and, and had the best music, he had the best of everything. When he was 20 years old, they found a surgeon that was able to do surgery on his blind eyes and for the first time he could see. He could actually see the king and everything that he'd been given by the king. He had heard about the king. He experienced things about the king, but he never saw the king. And then he saw him. In some ways, that's how God is as our father today, isn't it? We, we haven't seen him, and we don't see him. But one day in the new heavens and the new earth, we will. We'll see him just as he is. Our eyes will be open, and we'll see the one who's the source of everything good that we have. Oh, he's a good, good father. Perfect in all his ways. But the reality is, we have seen him in a number of ways. Because God makes himself known in creation. And God makes himself known in his word. And God makes himself known in Jesus. So what do we do with this father that Jesus has described for us that is our father? We believe him for what he said. And the scripture says, if you believe Jesus, then you're believing God. So when we think about Jesus, we're thinking about God the Father. And when we receive Jesus, we're receiving God as our Father. And he's not our Father until we receive what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus there died for us. He's, why is God the most amazing father ever? Well, one is he did the most amazing substitutionary sacrificial act ever in the sacrifice of his own son so that you and I could be freed up from guilt and shame and condemnation, and sin, judgment, hell. That's an amazing father. As many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe him, to those who are called his name. Only by receiving Jesus does God become our father. He's creator of all, not father of all. He's our father for those who are in Christ. One of the gifts that Lisa and I had together, because we had so much time together, we had multiple opportunities to get into conversations with people about Jesus. 
And I, I have to, for me, the way I'm wired, I have to train uh, and learn and really work uh, at, at how to have those conversations with people and really think through what someone's thinking and how to, how to dialogue with them. For Lisa, it just comes out of her and her relationship with Christ. It's just a treat to watch. But we just had multiple times where we were able to, to communicate Jesus with someone. We spent three hours on a plane uh, with a Scientologist and uh, just to hear her uh, talk and, and interact with the guy and just bring the gospel into the, uh, that conversation with that man. Uh, and he was, you know, he'd been just as good converting us to Scientology as, as we were trying to get him to see Jesus and uh, I love those conversations and he knew his stuff I I can respect that but the only way that God will be our father is to believe and receive Jesus and then the scripture says that when we honor God by honoring Jesus and that we love God when we love Jesus. See, when people talk about believing God but don't have Jesus in the mix, that doesn't square up with Scripture. Because the only way that we can love God as Father is to love Jesus, to honor Jesus, to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to enjoy Jesus. When we enjoy Him, we're enjoying God, our Father. Do you find a joy and a delight in God as your father. Here's the best thing I think today for dads, granddads, your spiritual mentor to someone, a spiritual child. I, I think the best thing we could do today as dads is to conform to the one who's the most amazing father ever and to be the best son that we could possibly be in Christ. One of the things I've probably yearned for and idolized is I would love to just be a great dad, a great husband, a great pastor. And I just know I'm not. But God reminded me one morning that he is a great dad and a great husband and a great pastor. And I don't have to be. He's the one that's perfect. The best thing I can do is relax into him, fold into him, and let him be a good, good father through me. And our sons and our grandsons we'll see the goodness of God. And as the writer of Deuteronomy says, it will be for their survival, for their good and their survival. I wanna end this with Grace Lyons. She was one of those young ladies in the softball. You might not have seen this part, uh, but she wrote a letter to softball. And I want you to hear her describe that letter. Dear softball, I fell in love with you when I was a little girl, always carrying around my glove, throwing tennis balls off the wall, and hitting with my dad in the park. I played with the boys when there was no softball, and then finally switched over once recruiting started, and that's when it started to get serious. I hungered for competition and strived for excellence, but for a while, you were something that my hands had such a tight grip on. My identity was tied so tightly to a game 
that leads to failure almost all of the time, and I rode the roller coaster of emotions. Then I met Jesus. I learned I have a loving Father who died for my sins and has a plan for my life, a plan to give me a hope and a future. My perspective changed when I realized you were just something I did, not who I was. Jesus tells me who I am, and I wanted to bring this light into the softball world and play the game differently. I was so blessed to have the opportunity to attend the best university in the country and play for the best program imaginable. Yes, winning a few national championships and winning some personal honors is amazing, and I will never take that for granted. But it is so much greater than what goes on on that dirt. First, I have met some of my best friends and my future husband at OU. Praise the Lord. But even more so, the Lord has given me a platform to shine a light that the world tries to dim. The expectation is to idolize you, and the promise is that true joy comes from reaching a goal that you have put all of your effort into. Yes, we as Christians are expected to work hard at all that we do for Christ, but the real victory has already been won on the cross, Jesus dying for my sin and saving me. Because of this, I have an eternal hope that allows me to play your game free with fullness of joy that comes only from the Lord. With this mindset, I have played the most joyful softball the last five years. What's crazy is that this joy doesn't come after big wins, home runs, championships, etc., because all of those things will fade away. I am filled with a steadfast joy when I see one of my teammates decide to get baptized and become a sister in Christ. I will never forget worshiping with my teammates, singing the song Nobody in center field after winning the second national championship. God is so awesome. My prayer when I started college was that I could be a vessel that the Lord uses in his kingdom to bring others to know him. As I leave college softball, I pray that others can know how loved they are by the creator of the world and that Jesus can use you in mighty ways. You just need to be willing and obedient. I'll end with one of my favorite verses, Romans 8:28, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Sincerely, Grace Lyons. That kid, yeah. A letter to softball could just as easily be a letter to work, a letter to family, a letter to play, fill in the blank. Where do we find our primary identity? And she was telling softball, you're not my identity. You're something I do, but you're not my identity. My identity lies in my father who lovingly gave his life for me. Today, you can know that we have a perfect father that looks at his children and says, you're accepted, you're valued, you're loved today. Now come on and follow me. Could we just recite the Lord's Prayer together and then move from there to a quiet spot? I think it's a beautiful picture of our Father in community, uh, and we have it uh, on the screen. So if we could, let's that be our prayer and then a little bit of quiet space before Him. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil.